0: Sarah Hobson, welcome to the New School.
1: Thank you so much for having me here.
0: Sarah, your uh, resume says that you are a specialist in documenting and resourcing community-driven initiatives globally and in mobilizing resources to support those initiatives. And you've worked extensively with community organizations, especially those led by women in Bangladesh, India, Iran, the Philippines, Peru, and Bolivia, and in West and South Africa. You're currently the executive director of the New Field Foundation, funding women's initiatives in sub-Saharan Africa. And before that, you were the executive director of a wonderful organization called IDEX, uh, which stands for um, uh, International Development Exchange. Uh, worked in partnership with local organizations in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. You also spent 10 years as a communications consultant to the International Fund for Agricultural Development. And as if that weren't enough, you have um, uh, produced or been deeply involved with about 10 films and 11 books um, and are the founder and a board member of Open Channels, which works with indigenous communities in South Africa to secure their land rights. So uh, that's a lot to say all at once, but uh, you get the picture of uh, Sarah's work uh, as essentially deeply involved with women in very uh, poor communities in the developing world. That's been a large part of what you've been about.
1: Very much so, though I would change the word poor, because from my point of view, it's an incredibly rich mm-hmm. experience and very rich communities. But many of these communities are seen as poor mm-hmm. and, or are not seen at all.
0: Right, right. Um, in addition to your work with foundations, one thing I want to introduce at the start is that um, since you were a very young woman, you've been a, a traveler and one might almost say an adventurer. You've uh, been called, you, when we had tea in Point Reyes a few days ago, and you said that when you traveled uh, in uh, the developing world, or what, what, what language do you like for developing world? Let's pick a language that you like.
1: Um, I don't like developing world. Right. That's astute. Right. Um, I don't think I really have a term. It's right. like I tend to say I've been privileged to travel. I've traveled in many parts of the world. Some of my favorite places are... India, it's like they're all places that are uh, interesting and exciting, including here in California. I've only lived here 12 years, and I'm exploring and adventuring to some extent Mm -hmm. here too.
0: And you said that when you are traveling, that when you see hills, that you have this powerful instinct to walk out into the hills. It's true. And to find the villages that have been less touched by modernization and see what's going on there.
1: So as you were saying that, actually, I think the, it prompted the memory of one of my first adventures, which was when I was about 14, 13 or 14, um, and we spent a lot of time in Scotland because my father's side of the family is Scottish and we would spend holidays there. And I found this broken down cabin uh, that the sheep had been living in for many years, um, like two hours walk from our home. And I decided that I would like to go and spend time there. Hmm. Um, and I commandeered the help of my sisters and we tapped the, you know, got the roof back on again and um, got, got there was a wood stove and there was an iron bedstead. And I would go, go leave our home and I would go up there for several days at a time. And it, looking back on it, it's both a spirit of adventure um, and a sense of freedom, but it 's also to me surprising that my parents allowed me to do it. It was just like mm-hmm. I was going off into the wilderness and as I was w- driving down here to commonweal it's like, it 's like it reminded me so much of a lot of the Scottish landscape mm-hmm. so I think from a fa- fairly early age, I was in landscapes that I loved exploring, and I was very interested i 've always been interested in the human imprint on landscape, in wild places particularly, and there's always been something really amazing to me about very isolated communities that are nestled in hills and mountains that are living vibrant lives and are very connected with the earth, and I think mountains are very special places for me.
0: Mm-hmm. One of your your early adventures was, as I mentioned, traveling uh, Uh, disguised as uh, a man through Persia. How did that come to be?
1: So uh, Persia is now Iran. Right. Um, And it partly came out of, I think, my sense of spirit of adventure. It also came out of, I think, a very British tradition of Uh, traveling and adventuring, and particularly to the Middle East, Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, mostly men, but many women like Gertrude Stein. I mean, there's a history of women travelers in the 19th century. And I think from, again, from about the age of 13, maybe this was sort of my time in my life of uh, opening up to the world. I was at a lecture at school, which was about the mountains um, in Iran, in the north of Iran, the Alborz mountains. And from that moment, I wanted to experience that place. And I became very interested in Iran and also in Islam. And it was preceded by a a journey in when I was 17, I spent six months on the West Bank of Jordan, living in a Russian Orthodox convent, um, helping to teach Palestinian children, which was this mind-blowing experience. It was completely amazing and wonderful. And that helped me, I think, to understand better a different world um, and in the Middle East. And it was really after my father's death that I felt that I really wanted to escape from London again and learn more about other parts of the world and knew that it was a hassle to travel in a Middle Eastern country as a single European girl. So I did, did developed this idea of dressing up as a boy. So thinking simply that it would protect me in the distance, that, you know, I would I would have a little bit more freedom. But I found more and more that people just took me at face value. And so I hitchhiked to Istanbul. I then got a bus from Istanbul to Tehran. Um, I think because I'm quite tall, I was much slimmer in those days. Uh, my voice is quite deep. I was taken really as a European boy in, you know, sort of 20 or so. And at that time, there were a lot of people, European people crossing the north of Iran to go to Afghanistan, hippies. So the idea of the European was probably not very distinctly masculine or feminine. And also in Iranian society at that time, women weren't traveling on their own. So all of the assumptions were, you know, I must be a boy. So, and it did, it protected me. It gave me a lot of uh, freedom of movement and I was able to move around, I think, much more than if I had been uh, traveling as a girl.
0: And you visited one of the holiest cities in Iran.
1: Yes, I, I visited Gholm, where there's the, the holy shrine of um, Fatima, and um, it's a it's a Goum and Mashhad are the two great centers of pilgrimage within Iran. Gholm um, is the center of learning, so there are many theological colleges there, and um, I, and it was the, the um, it's the seat of Khomeini, who at that time was in exile, was in Iraq and in France, but who returned when the Shah was uh, booted out. Um, mm-hmm. And Gum was his city. And so I had this incredible inside view of Iranian life and religious life in the 70s in the run up to the revolution. So, mm-hmm.
0: And in Gum, you met a man named Jesus Christ, if I'm <laughs> not mistaken.
1: Well, he was called Isa, okay. which is the. Um,
0: so, did you name him Jesus Christ in the book, or yes. was that his actual name? Well,
1: his name was Jesus. So, Isa okay. is Jesus, and okay. Jesus is a very revered right. prophet within right. the Muslim, within within Islam.
0: So, tell us about Isa.
1: So, he was um, a teacher of jurisprudence. Hmm. Um, he was actually from Qatar, not from Iran. He was a uh, had been in Rome for a number of years and. I was introduced to him by a, a student whom I met who was Kenyan, whose theological college I'd wandered into. And he, again, took me at face value. And I was really interested in learning about Islam. So he said, well, you can come to some of these lectures. And so, Isa, uh, so I was taken to meet Isa and sat in on some of his lectures, and we had a lot of discussions about
0: You spoke Islam. some Persian.
1: I spoke some Persian, and also this person from Kenya spoke English. so. He facilitated my, um, my understanding, and they enabled me to go into, this, into the shrine, which is not allowed for non-Muslims. Um, and
0: also not allowed for women.
1: And not, uh, Women can go. Oh, they can. Yes, uh-huh. as long as they're veiled. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very unusual for a, for a European to be allowed in. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, so I often went to Issa's home as well as a boy, and there were usually like four or five of us, and you you know you sit on the floor on a carpet. You have discourse, discussion, dialogue. Um, it was really interesting, and a lot of it was him and others telling me about and interpreting what Islam is for this naive young foreigner who knew very little about Islam. But we would have discussions about um, the role of women and. Um, um, but, you know, truly, what is the path of Islam? And I think through that, I learned that it's a very practical religion. Um, I developed a great uh, respect for Islam during that experience. But there was also always a twinkle in Isa's eye. I really liked him. Um, and I, would, I actually went back and forth as I traveled to other parts in Iran. Then I would come back through Gum. I felt that it, I was... Not that it was dangerous, but it was sort of, I was a bit uneasy because I shouldn't have really been there. Um, And as I was leaving the very last day, he and this uh, other person gave me a a presentation, a a gift to take back with me. And the Kenyan person gave me a pair of male socks, brown socks with a white line around the ankle. And the gift from Issa was this incredible scarlet sort of negligee petticoat with white lace across the breast, And I held it up, looking all innocent, saying, oh, this will be wonderful for my girlfriend, thank you so much. <laughs> and he looked at me very straight and he said, uh, don't tell your friends that you've been lying to us or that you've been cheating us. And I said, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> all innocent, and he said, tell me, are you a boy or a girl? And I thought for a moment, and I thought, this is the moment of truth, and I need to speak the truth. And so I said, I'm a girl. And then I thought for a moment, and I said, well, how long have you known, or why did you ask? And he said, well, we sort of suspected all along. And I said, well, why didn't you ask me earlier? And he said, well, if we had done, and you had told us the truth, we would have had to have turned you away. And because we felt that you were sincere in your wish to learn and understand about Islam. Uh, we wanted to not ask too many questions and allow you to, to learn. Um, and I think that, you know, that's been often my experience of Islam and both Muslims and teachers is that there is an openness of spirit and intellectual interest. And I think certainly in Iran, there's been a, there's been a lot of very, there's really interesting progressive Islamic philosophy that's come out of Iran. Mm
0: -hmm. With your background in Iran, as you have watched the revolution that has been sweeping the Islamic countries over the last few months, what insight comes to you from your prior experience as to what we're witnessing? Mm.
1: Very relevant. Um, Perhaps if I could just explain that I spent three months in Iran during the revolution, at the height of the revolution, um, at the time that martial law was declared. I was also there at a time when many people had gathered in a large square, very similarly as is happening in North Africa. And very similarly, helicopters, military helicopters flew in and gunned down people. Um, and actually what happened in, in, in that particular day was that they declared martial law like at midnight, which said nobody can be out on the streets after dark. And it was in the middle of the night. And of course, nobody knew that that was the declaration or mech- martial law had been declared. So helicopters were sent in and gunned down about 2,000 people. Um, it was, And that was, you know, really uh, exacerbated the, the response. And it was clear that that kind of brutal... Uh, killing was completely unacceptable and there were rivers of blood, I mean, and uh, a great sense of martyrdom. So when I see, uh, so also during the Iranian revolution, the sense of being anti-Shah, anti-dictator was incredibly strong. And so many uh, elements of society that normally wouldn't work together, worked together against the Shah. And uh, some were pro-democracy and some were pro-Islamic an Republic. And of course, those divisions then showed up afterwards. So when I look at what's happening in North Africa, I think that um, there is this very strong movement against the Shah. And it hasn't just sort of erupted because of, you know, out of spontaneity or because there's Twitter or Facebook. It comes out of many years of um, organizing, movement building, consciousness raising, um, and connecting. And so I think the connecting isn't just through uh, Facebook or or Twitter, that enables it, obviously, but there is a sense of a wish to have greater freedom, to have greater democracy, or to not to live in a a state where it's very repressive. And I would say that was the true of Iran, that the role of the secret police in the 70s was extraordinarily brutal and repressive. And I think there comes a point when, as a society, if you're or as an individual where if you're repressed and repressed and repressed, then you know you, there comes a point when you react and rebel. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what happened in Tunisia and Egypt was wonderful and amazing because it was relatively speaking non-violent. Um, the numbers of deaths in Egypt were in the hundreds rather than the thousands. Um, I think that there was a departure um, and the real work starts now. You know, it's like there aren't, there isn't the infrastructure. This is always the difficulty when there's a vacuum. You know, it's, you throw someone out and then what takes place next? So I'll be watching with real interest. And I think in Libya reminds me much more of, of Iran that it's like, well, I'm in power. I'm in charge. I'm going to kill you if you protest against me. And I think that's what's happening in, in, in Libya. Um, and it's... Uh, I think it's the same. I, when I was in Iran too, I think there's the same sense of euphoria, and of of devastation. You know, it's like we, we have the power as people to to change the regime. We don't have the power not to be killed, and we don't have control over the military. And I was in. Um, I've just come back from Senegal and Burkina Faso in West Africa. And in Senegal, the was the again. Just, just recently yes I got yeah. back a couple yeah. of weeks ago yeah. um, and in early February there was um, this big event called the World Social Forum which happens every other year in different parts of the world mostly it's been in Latin America but it's a very it's an open forum where tens of thousands of people gather um, from civil society so it's a civil society event it's not private sector it's not government and it's a place for debate discussion connection um, and it's you know it's its slogan is another world is possible. So it's anti mostly global economy, anti very huge corporate sector interest. Um, and this was happening, this occurred at the time that the mobilization in, um, Af- in Egypt was happening particularly. And there was actually a caravan of people who came down from North Africa to, to be at the World Social Forum to, to let people know what was happening. And there was this sense of uh, hope um, solidarity, anticipation, excitement, you know, after years of work that actually it is possible to change something. But then as the news starts coming in about Libya, it, it puts into question what's really happening. Right.
0: As the executive director, founding executive director of the New Field Foundation, as I mentioned, you're working with uh, women in, in sub Saharan Africa. And um, let's start with what the vision is of the New Field Foundation for its work. What, 10 years from now, what do you hope to have achieved?
1: So can I step back a bit yes. and just yep. talk perhaps about the mission, what we're trying to achieve? Right. Um, because I think that the really our vision, our mission and our vision is to contribute to a peaceful and equitable world. And I think that um, we want to do that by supporting women and their organizations and their families and communities. To actually, our mission statement says to overcome poverty, violence, and injustice. And I think that we feel that the way to do that is—I mean, we can't do it, and it's not appropriate for us as a foundation. But it's also not appropriate for us as a northern, as an organization in in the U.S. to be doing it either for or on behalf of, that we really want to support people, people's leadership who understand their own problems, who have their own solutions, who are already um, bringing about a lot of change for themselves and their communities. And I think that what's happening in, in particularly in, in Africa, actually all over Africa, though we concentrate more on sub-Saharan Africa, is this tremendous sense of awakening of movement building in all different areas. So there's a very strong women's movement in Africa. It's both a feminist movement and it's a women's rights movement. There's also a very strong people's movement, um, social justice movement. I think all across the world there's social justice. is, People's ideas are changing and people are moving to work together to change the systems that we live in. Um, and so I think that what we're interested in doing is adding value, perhaps one could say, with the, the grants that we can make to those initiatives that are already happening. And so our job in a sense is to um, really discern where, where is that change happening that's you know, true and solid and really bringing about change for, for rural women and their families and their communities. And many studies over many years in many parts of the world have shown that if you really can benefit grassroots women you know, the the benefit that goes to them will go much more to uh, their children, to their families, to their homes. Unfortunately, um, I don't wish to be <laughs> well, sexist, just the truth. but I think that you know, yeah. often and traditionally, and yeah. it's probably not true. Money right. is changing, but you right. know, money that men have tends to go more on alcohol, more on alcohol, yeah. drugs, sex, yeah. right? All of that, right. and so I think there's a greater sense of a more chance of an investment if, you, um, if you're really supporting rural women. And I think we're really interested in supporting their organizations and their networks because if you support, you know, a thousand women who are working together, who are connected or who are supporting 5,000 people who are their families, who are connected with another thousand, it very quickly uh, grows and very quickly has an impact.
0: So what are the countries you're working in?
1: So we, we, most of our uh, funding goes to West, West Africa, um, and we do that because we have this little motto where we say we want to fund where there's greatest need, uh, least funding and most potential. And I would in West and Central Africa, it's very clear that the situation of women is uh, has, is definitely um, not. Good you know very high maternal mortality rates, very high infant mortality rates, um, very low literacy for women um, and it 's all relative because actually the situation of n- many women across Africa is pretty is dire, but in terms of their potential there 's incredible connections with each other, huge energy, many of them are farmers I mean seventy to eighty percent of africa 's um, food is produced and processed by women. So incredible opportunity and and potential. So the countries that we fund in, I'm sorry I take a rather Mm. (laughs) long time to answer your questions. Um, So we fund in, and we're really interested in funding in post-conflict areas where the people are coming out of war. So we fund in the border area between Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. And then we fund in the border area between Mali, Burkina Faso, and Côte d'Ivoire. And then we fund in the southern part of um, Senegal, which is Casamance, which is coming out of twenty years of war, and cross-border with uh, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, and Gambia.
0: Right.
1: And can I just ask a yes. question? Because I, I know you. Yeah, yeah. W- we're hoping both that this will be <clears throat> mutual. I think that you know the big question for me when speaking also is you know how, is this too sort of specific to Africa? How do people here engage with the issue if they haven't already been? To Africa, does this seem sort of remote? Are my my answers too detailed? Um, do people are you getting a sense of, of the work? Is it important to connect it with mm-hmm. with the U.S. Because I can talk endlessly. Well, while I work. first of all, I'm having a good time, which is my criterion for whether
0: the conversation is going well or not. So you know, I, I judge it from whether I'm having a good time, and I'm having a very good time. and Other people will have to speak for themselves when that time comes. But I think, the, as you know, um, I'm a sort of accidentally involved in philanthropy because out of our Cancer Help Program, which we've done here for 26 years, came two small foundations that I'm responsible for. And so I had to learn not only to be a beggar and carry my cup around for Commonweal, but also yeah. how to be a grant maker, which has been the last 14 years on a small scale. And out of that uh, came something called the Health and Environmental Funders Network, which is 170 funders engaged in uh, in health and environment philanthropy. And you and I have traveled many of the same trails, uh, at least in a parallel way. Uh, And I think the work at Newfield Foundation and IDEX are both extraordinary examples. Uh, What I would say is that it seems to me that any foundation that, well... Any foundation that wants to have the biggest potential impact on social and environmental justice uh, must look to the developing world, whatever you want to call it, simply because uh, the cost of having an impact there is so much lower than it is in the United States. A $10,000 grant or a $5,000 grant in the developing world can have an enormous impact if it's skillfully made. I think that one of the key questions, let's imagine that you or somebody else has, has a small foundation and wants to work in the developing world. Then the question is the methodology. And so, for example, if we take three organizations that I now know a little bit about, One is called the uh, Global Global Green Grants Fund, which I'm on the board of just recently. A second is an extraordinary organization called Ashoka, Entrepreneurs for the Public. And the third would be the Newfield Foundation. Now each of those works in the developing world, and each of them has a distinctly different methodology. So the Ashoka methodology, and that really virtually created the idea of social entrepreneurs, is an elaborate screening process that identifies these really extraordinary individuals and funds them for, I forget whether it's three or five years, uh, to do whatever they are absolutely passionate about doing. And it's created a, a global community of social entrepreneurs and introduced the whole concept of social entrepreneurs, which now we take for granted. But when Ashoka started, it was a completely new concept. So that's one strategy. So what does the success of Ashoka depend on? It depends on the quality of the screening technology, which Jan Weisick, who is on the Commonwealth board and is not here today, but she's been one of the people deeply involved in that. And from everything I can see, it's a very high quality screening system that actually works. You know, So that's one technology that I think really works. The Global Green Grants Fund technology uh, is different. They go into a country and try to identify a small advisory board which in ter- and then they funnel the money to that advisory board and that advisory board chooses the grantees uh, in you know, the field of interest of really impacting low-income communities across a whole set of interest areas. Now, it seems to me that your approach uh, uh, is yet a, a third variant on this which having identified, as you said, what you care about and what you're concerned about, as you said, you work through these networks, at least as I understand it, and in the material that I read in preparation for our conversation, it is apparently the case that in the area where you're making grants, these networks had already developed. It isn't as though you needed to go in and develop them. So there were these... uh, uh, networks of uh, women, uh, women farmers from these rural uh, communities uh, that was that were already trying to help them, that were indigenous networks. So you then, if I understand correctly, began to make grants through those networks. And of course part of the issue was who had the capacity to actually accept money from a foreign foundation, make the grants flow through to the grassroots groups, keep the records, all that, and presumably do some kind of evaluation of how effective it is. So I think the place that it might make sense to go would be, um, how's that working? In other words, it's a, it's a theory. Uh, you've been at it now for five years. You've put, what, how many million dollars in actual investment so far? Uh,
1: well, uh- Probably about 20 million.
0: 20 million yes, so not far. not all
1: going out in grants, but that's for, to develop the whole new field and develop a grant making
0: program. Right. And the grant amount is, what, half of that or so? So uh,
1: two-thirds of that.
0: Two-thirds of that. Yeah. So about 12, 13 million yeah. in grants. Yeah. Um, so how's it working? What have you learned from the mm. effort to fund through these uh, women's networks?
1: Um, We're we're learning that it's working really well Mm -hmm. um, and we're also learning where the challenges are. I think that it's important to recognize that we spent the first two years doing research and experimenting because we wanted to learn and we wanted to find out where we could make a difference. Um, and we didn't have a set idea about how things ought to be. It was like, what's happening on the ground that's that's really working? And I think that we have a view about money, which is that it's energy, and money can also be seen as power, but for us, it's like uh, a, a, a something that can help movement. Um, and um, we, uh, I think the heart of our program is what we call a community grant-making program, and it's based on the... F- I would say the philosophy that rural women are completely capable of using money really well um, and taking advantage of resources that's going to benefit not just them, but many, many other people. So our task, in a sense, has been how do we get money directly into the hands of rural women? And at one level, you have the model of microcredit and microfinance. And I think that um, we feel that that often... um, you know, sort of gets stuck at the individual the or the level of a group of five, and often doesn't, is often introduced in a way that actually rural women can't access, doesn't necessarily meet their needs, and often doesn't, it, it can alleviate poverty, but it's not necessarily a long term solution. Um, so I think we we've been more interested in getting larger amounts of money to larger groups of women, so that they can uh, capitalize on that and invest on that. So
0: give us an example.
1: So a really good example is um, um, first of all that we we try and fund clusters of rural women's groups, um, and we we work through a larger organisation that has the capacity to take a larger grant from a U.S. foundation, as you say. And they have a relationship with the networks or with the rural women's groups. And uh, they help to pass on the, the grants. And so what we've seen often is a pattern that initially, you know, the first amount of grants of, two to eight thousand dollars per group will go towards really increasing their production so particularly after conflict many of them will come back and they will have nothing no livestock no seed no tools nothing so often that first law, that grant will go to enabling them to actually develop their own resources and grow food which they can then feed their families and they can sell a part of it and out of that they can then invest they can distribute the savings among themselves, but they can then invest in something else. So we've seen the sort of the next year, they've then often expanded what they grow. They've also expanded how many women they bring in. What they then do is to start making strategic directions about okay, we're going to grow this for our own consumption, but actually we're going to have a field now to grow something that we can then sell in market because we know that it's needed. And then, you know, here's the big rub. We're all working 15 hours a day, so actually how are we going to reduce our labor so that we actually can contribute to our families and our community and not just be drudges because that's, I mean, the workload of rural women all over the world, but particularly in, in Africa is immense. Um, and so the, you know, we then see the beginning of the purchase of technology, local, rural, agricultural technology that reduces the women's labor. So one huge thing which became uh, very popular was rice hullers, so that you know, women aren't spending five or six hours a day um, hulling their rice, they actually walk 10 minutes down the road and get 10 minutes, get all of their rice hulled. And, you know, it costs them a cupful of rice. As a, They don't even have to use money. So that's been a, an incredible and really amazing liberator of women. And that then enables them either to do more farming, to take more care of their kids. It helps them to get more involved in the community. Um, there's a whole decentralization process in West Africa. So many of them are you know, standing for election for their local rural district council, and or uh, mobilizing among each other to actually get elected or to get representations, because what they want to do is influence the money that's coming in from the central government and how that gets distributed. They want it to go to, you know, st- local clinics or the local school or something that's going to benefit the whole community. Um, and then we've also seen them investing in, you know, like palm or small palm oil plantations where they're working together. And then there's one spectacular story, one, one group that we were working with, um, which was actually the larger. So we're working with all sorts of different levels. But the key, as you say, is that they already exist. They're already organized. They've already got a vision of what they want to do. They're already bringing in resources. Um, and so we'll work with them at, you know, whatever level they are. So there's one group that we were working with. Um, that was doing a lot of peace building um, and supporting the organizing of women's groups. But they actually felt that they couldn't go on being dependent on external resources, and they wanted to have more resources. So they decided that what they wanted to do was uh, develop and um, market a product. And they had noticed that there was a mango in vast quantities that nobody ate because nobody liked the taste. So they teamed up with um, uh, an appropriate technology research institute and did tests on developing a formula for a mango vinegar. It took them two years to do that. And then they raised a million dollars (coughs) from European agencies um, as grants to help build a factory which now produces 30,000 liters of uh, local mango vinegar called La Delice or Delicious. Um, and it employs 14 women locally. It uses up you know, mangos that have just been lying around. Mm. And it's a non-profit. I mean, it's a business, but it's a non-profit. So all of the proceeds go back into their organization to pay for um, their operations. And they also use, they give away a percentage of what they produce to other rural women's networks and organizations. Now, in the material
0: so, you gave me, one of the, the things that really struck me uh, was apparently that the women themselves uh, are not interested in genetically modified seeds, want to use local seeds, find that pesticides make their foods not taste as good and rot sooner. Uh, So there's a whole point of view which, um, which is strikingly Divergent from what is happening with uh, the neoliberal orthodoxy of um, of agriculture in Africa, uh, and uh, and some of the materials you gave me uh, talked about what is well documented, the the land grab uh, in Africa in which large corporations are purchasing, large international corporations, are purchasing vast tracts of land, uh, clearing people out of them and growing uh, crops for export. Uh, You also uh, gave me some material about an initiative by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Uh, which uh, is probably more enlightened than that, but still is significantly different from the model of community-based indigenous agriculture that interests you and that you're supporting. Um, What do you think the prospects actually are that this brave vision of these uh, uh, women farmers that you share uh, up against the... The force of uh, neoliberal agriculture, uh, what are the prospects for it?
1: Very good in certain places, terrible in other places. Mm. Um, I think it depends where you are, who, what, what the foreign investment is, what the government is. Um, it's very patchy, and I think one of the difficulties of understanding Africa is, the, is to just call it Africa because it's many nations and many countries and, and many different circumstances and very different um, you know, political and economic um, systems. So I think um, in West Africa, there is uh, probably a better chance in some ways, so th- but there's also the unknown element of climate change which is gonna hit <laughs> West Africa and particularly the northern, you know, the Sahelian parts of West Africa probably very, very hard. But in some ways, parts of West Africa are, well, French-speaking Africa is probably more protected because um, it's not part of the English-speaking world of, you know, investment, finance, funding. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that we also chose to work in West Africa, that relatively speaking, there's much more funding whether it's you know multilateral government funding, UN funding, private foundation funding going into East Africa and Southern Africa because of uh, colonial, you know, because of the history, because of the connections, because of you know, how money flows for all sorts of reasons. Um, and again, I think we felt that in West Africa, we could um, we could probably our money would probably be more useful. Um, I think. The, again, you know, West Africa goes from Nigeria, the most populated country in, in Africa, to um, Burkina Faso, which is, you know... I mean, th- there are some very small countries in West Africa with quite complex histories. And I think that there is also a very strong food sovereignty movement in West Africa that has grown out of the fact that there's a very strong and numerous... I mean, there's a the peasant culture and the the... Just numerically, if you look at how society is made up in many parts of West Africa, the majority of people are living in rural areas, are smallholder farmers, are cultivators. Um, And partly because of the history of West Africa, parts of West Africa, post-independence with socialist movements, there's been much more, I think, organizing of peasant society. So there are very strong farmer unions. There are very strong... um, indigenous networks. Um, And so um, it's possible to build on that. And I think quite a lot of European, for example, international non-governmental organizations like Christian Aid, Action Aid, Save the Children have been supporting the development of those networks as well. And um, so I think there's a a good chance and it's incredibly unpredictable because who knows where the global economy is going anyway.
0: Just a linguistic question. I'm interested and enthused to hear you use the word peasant with a positive valence. Right. Uh, Is this uh, politically accepted in the communities in which you work, that peasant is a word that can be used with a positive valence to describe this community?
1: Yes, I would say all of the large farmer associations call themselves, you know, federation or association of peasant farmers or right. peasant producers it's a particularly in in French-speaking Africa it's it's a very
0: is that paysan
1: paysan yes yeah. it's very common and it's something to be proud of um, we use rural women rather than peasant because actually the situation of rural women is I think quite distinct and I think within the culture of uh, peasant culture the the role of rural women is quite specific and I think the status of women is also um, something that needs to be looked at thoughtfully and carefully. And a lot of the women's rights work that's been done, which is changing policy at national level, actually uh, doesn't get to or can't be used very easily by rural women because they're much more bound by customary law and religious law and they often don't have access to either the information or the knowledge or the, the tool the means by which to take advantage of the of the frameworks the policy frameworks that promote women's rights.
0: Now, when you you obviously have a great deal of respect for indigenous cultures, something you believe in. And um, when you go into often remote indigenous villages and peasant cultures and you begin to operate in a way that fundamentally changes the power dynamic uh, and the relationship of women who are very oppressed and, uh, and usually can't own land and uh, really work non-stop from dawn to late at night. Uh, but when you come in with energy, with money, and begin to shift that power dynamic in ways that all of us would consider beneficial, or everybody in this audience would consider beneficial, what impact does that have on the sustainability and the resilience of the traditional culture which you Hmm. respect? In other words, is it not possible, we certainly know that the acidity of modernity destroys uh, traditional cultures, Uh, but is it not possible that Entirely well meaning efforts to enhance the position of women in these cultures may have an impact on the culture as a whole that may, in certain respects, prove destructive because the age old relationships, uh, you know, harsh as they may be, may be built into a cultural fabric that dissolves. What is your experience with that issue?
1: I think it's a, a, a really important question, and I think you've stated it very accurately and clearly, and it's something that we think about a lot and are concerned about. And I think that uh, the key for us is what are some of the sort of checks and balances that we have in our own program, and also how much are we listening to hear what those changes are and what kind of impact. Because they can lead to greater violence against women. They can lead to, as you say, acidity. Um, They can lead to displacement. There are all sorts of negative impacts. So I think that uh, one of the things that's really important for us is that we have local program offices. So we're not making the decisions here in in San Francisco. I mean, ultimately, of course, we're making the decisions around strategy and approving our board is making grants. And our board are deeply engaged and they have really um, shaped a huge amount of the work that we do, and I think we 're a very um, engaged organization and that 's partly our strength' that's, that we you know, we bring in the perspectives of many different people and our border a very uh, have a huge amount of philanthropic experience in making doing in community grant making um, in different parts of the world and in the u s so it is a, a huge concern, and one of the uh, checks and balances that we have, is that we have local advisors who, are, who we select very carefully, um, who are both based at national level and local community level. Um, and then we have our own, we have three small offices in West Africa, in um, Senegal and Burkina Faso and Sierra Leone. And they are women who, uh, some of them are from peasant backgrounds themselves, who have um, become educated and who have a deep commitment still to working as part of their mission and vision in life to support um, the development of rural women. So there's a sense of accompaniment and not of, you know, top down. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a great deal of sensitivity, particularly as we work in many Muslim countries, which is what is the power dynamic? And, you know, if you introduce money and resources to women's groups, how is that going to change the power dynamic? And what we've seen mostly is that if you go slowly and you know we always we're incredibly slow and we you know we do things very cautiously Um, and if you watch carefully what we have learned is that it as long as it's benefiting the whole community and as long as it's not just women and if the men in the community are respected that first of all, you know, that we, that there is a respect for the community elders, the chief, the religious leader, and if they give permission for this work to be done, then, and, um, then that first of all, that uh, can reduce the resentment or the uh, nervousness about this work being done. And secondly, I think that um, the, you can tell I'm hesitating, because it is a difficult topic, Um, But I think that, again, it's this question of trust, that we actually trust that these women's organizations know how to diplomatically handle these resources within their community, and they're going to do absolutely everything to ensure that it's either not taken away from them or it doesn't prompt a a reaction against them. Um, And so they navigate their way through it. And... um, we have seen the status of women improve within the community. We've seen many of them being asked to be on advisory committees to the, you know, deal with the resources for the community. Uh, we've, many of the women have commented how respect for them has changed, that they're being asked to the table to discuss. Um, and I would say across the board, all women would like to have less work, more respect, uh, more resources, um, and it's not a question of Western feminism. It's like, what's for her fair, what's just, what's doable within a changing society, and how can they make their contribution mm-hmm. in, a, in a fair way? And I think in many of the rural areas, you know, many of the men have migrated. I think there's often an appreciation that um, rural women actually, ha- they do have a leadership role. I mean, they're actually very highly, they may be oppressed in some areas, I mean, in some ways, but, you know, they're deeply respected for the fact that they grow, you know, they are the rice cultivators. They're deeply respected for the fact that they feed their families and take care. They're deeply respected for a lot of their local knowledge. So it's like, how do you enhance that respect um, and support them for their own in their own vision in ways that are non-confrontational.
0: Mm-hmm. How many women do you think? You, how many lives are you changing at this point?
1: I wish you hadn't asked that because we're just doing our, um, our, our. We have a strategic plan, and we want to reach the the lives of three hundred thousand people. Um, and I would say we're. Probably a third of the way through Mm -hmm. that, Um, but I don't have. You know, we're in the process. It's very difficult to document, always to get exact figures, Mm -hmm. and I think that's also something that's really interesting. It's like, how do you work in Africa when you're in the U.S. when so much in the U.S. is very quantitative, Mm -hmm. and we, you know, so much is like facts and figures, and and it's something I respect and I admire. But actually, it's the U.S. way of doing things, and it's, uh, it's necessary for the way the U.S. does things. And it was, it's also true in Europe, uh, but in Africa, um, it's not that they don't want to be quantitative, but often there aren't the means to do it, or there hasn't been the training, or it's a different system. And certainly in the rural world, it tends to be knowledge that's based on... Uh, Rhythm and So seasons. obviously,
0: it's not something you can answer in a in a very. But in in some yeah. broad sense, you think yes. you're about a third of the way there. Yes. Yeah. And we had a conversation about um, about social movements and how they work. Is is part of your hope that the work that you're doing will uh, contribute to this dimension of the global movement for justice that we see mm-hmm. taking place everywhere. In other words, what, how do you see your work engaging with the enormous power of the global social movements that's having such an impact today?
1: So I think we'd like to support it. I think that one of the biggest mistakes for funders is to think that they can direct or, you know, they have the solution. And I think the art is actually identifying what's happening and then choosing carefully and then supporting Mm -hmm. that. And I think that that there is a groundswell across the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it it was growing in the 60s and 70s. It got diminished in the 80s and 90s with structural adjustment and all sorts of reasons. And I feel that it's reemerging, and I have this tremendous sense of you know, people-led initiatives that are finding solutions that are threatened by the idea of climate change and with the, um, the connectivity that we have through the internet mm. and through phones. It's like the, there is this tremendous yeah. energy and uh, I think great. young people have a, a huge role to play and I think in Africa there's a very large young population and they, they need to be totally part of this mm-hmm. movement.
0: I have other questions that I want to ask, but I want to open it up to questions from uh, the audience. For a start. Richard, are you raising your hand, Richard, just saying hello? hello. Great. Hi, Richard and Doris. Yes, Don.
2: Well, I've, I've read and heard again and again that the, the men in many of these cultures um, really don't do much uh, to support the community. and. Um, and, you know, it relates to what you were asking earlier, Michael, but, I mean, is there any way you think of... I, first of all, I don't understand, um, w- having grown up in the Puritan work ethic that I did, uh, w- w- why they don't, the men, see that contributing more to the community and building their resources um, would make life better for everybody, and, and what's what's going on there, and why are, is this blocked? to them, I mean, and pushing all the work off to the women, which it just seems like a very unhealthy cultural setup. And I don't know how it got that way and whether there's any hope of it changing. I mean, you can't come in and say, well, this is the way you should do things. But like, what what are the, is there any way of getting at that?
1: Well, I think, first of all, um, it's a universal issue. Um, And I don't think that it's just, relative to Africa. So if you think back 200 years in Europe or maybe in the US, for me it's much more about a power structure and it's much more about who does which bit and who has which resources. Um, And I think that uh, it's not true at all to say that men in Africa don't work, they work. I mean, if you look at who's the migrant population, you know, many it's men, it's their role to go away from the communities and go and live in the most horrific conditions in France or elsewhere and bring money and often they send it back home. So there's a, there is a tremendous contribution. Um, I think that there it speaks to the exodus of uh, men in um, rural areas that there is not the means of earning and I think if you go back 200 years, you'll find a much more integrated model of men and women within rural communities in, in Africa. So it's, the, it's partly the, the impact of colonialism, the introduction of cash crops. I and mean, it's had a huge impact in terms of, of it's, not, it's not basic to the culture. It's the consequence of colonialism and history and what's happening now and the global economy. Um, it's, it's much more complex than that. And so I think it's also, again, what are the communities themselves, you know, what are they wanting what are they wanting? And, and I think there's a tremendous interest in migration if you're looking at what are the issues that men are struggling with in Africa. You know, it, a lot of it is to do with, with migration and, um, and uh, how, how do you earn and what's their role within society and within the global economy. Their forces are much, much bigger and greater. And I think that, you know, in many ways, I actually think women, we, we are luckier and perhaps even in traditional societies that... You know our roles are perhaps rather more defined. We're not expected to go to war. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of what men have to face is is really difficult, and I think that um, many of the you know the, in in Africa, I definitely would say it's much more patriarchal than here. Um, so we're noticing that sort of difference, um, and men have more authority, but. So they did here in the 19th century. You know, for me, it's not that different. And it's like, what were the, what were the impacts on Native Americans in the 19th century? Why, was, why did they lose their land? Why were they decimated? Why are they the way they are now? Um, what were the, what were, were the influences that, it, that enabled that to happen? I think that's the, the... And I would say in Africa, there are tremendous changes going on because of um, external forces and because of internal and so that's the difficulty of the funder. It's like, who do you ally yourself with? And you know, what is your vision? And do you, if you have a vision and you have an analysis, um, who do you ally yourself with? And are you imposing what you're doing? Or is it meeting uh, a wish or a need that's already happening? Um, and so who, who do you ally yourself with? And there are struggles. I mean, I think, Michael, what you said about agriculture, it's like really playing out in Africa. It's like there's this massive Uh, battle, actually, even going on for the Earth's resources within Africa. And it's for producing food, but it's also for producing plants for uh, biofuel, um, for crops that, you know, produce our cotton that we wear. It's like there's massive, massive uh, struggle going on for control of the resources, which includes land and water and minerals in Africa. And Africa is, I think, seen as... Often, you know, it, at its worst stereotype, it's a place that has no people. It only has animals. Um, at its best stereotype, it's, you know, it, I mean, Africa can totally feed itself. It has huge And historically minerals. did feed itself. Yes, and did feed itself. In, so. at the,
0: in the 60s and 70s at that time, Africa was a net exporter of food before what, the beginning of decolonization?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, again, dependent on different countries.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's get some other questions. Eric.
3: I have a comment about each of the two different parts you were talking about. The first one about Iran um, and your role as a documentary filmmaker. I wonder if you've uh, seen a film called The Queen and I, which is made by an Iranian Mm -hmm. woman. Um, I haven't, no. It's a wonderful film about uh, a woman who is an anti-Shah protester in the 70s, who was always fixated as a girl on McQueen, on um, Farah po- Yes. and she goes and meets her. And it's a very moving story about how <coughs> those two parts of one person's experience can be reconciled and dealt with mm-hmm. in okay. terms of the fact that after the revolution, essentially in many cases a worse revolution imposed itself upon the people.
1: When was it made?
3: Uh, within the last two years.
1: Oh, I'd really like to see it. Thank you. And actually, there was a fascinating interview that I saw, I, I think it was on CNN, but um, during the um, protests in Tunisia and Egypt, there was an interview with the Shah's son, who was basically, I mean, I was fascinated because you know he comes from this rather uh, dictatorial line. Um, and he was basically in support of the people's movement in Tunisia mm. and Egypt and saying, you know, actually, I, I I think that Mubarak and, you know, they have it wrong, you know, however many years ago it was in 1978, that was how, you, you know, you could, you know, you did gun down people and your authority was, was what it was, but that's not how the world works now and actually the world is now the world of people's movements and so we should be supporting the people's protests in, in Egypt and, uh-huh. and Tunisia. So that was a fascinating you know, turnaround, I felt, was really interesting. He appears in this
3: film. Oh, uh, he does? Yes, and um, it's very interesting because the assumption <coughs> by most people when the filmmaker travels around with um, the Queen is that she is one of the retinue. Right. And so people are very friendly to her and speak very openly to her when, in point of fact, the Queen knows very well that she is trying to represent a different point of view, mm. and so um, the uh, the son of the Shah understands that right away, and changes in the middle of uh, the, the film in terms of his relationship to her and huh. speaking mm. more openly to her about it. Mm. Um, the other question I had was a uh, response was very naive because I'm not a social justice person and I'm not a, um, a philanthropist uh, working in change, but I hear so much around the perimeters of Commonweal work done with Ashoka and um, different organizations, different foundations, about funding for um, indigenous people and countries that are called, whatever, developing, however we phrase it. But I wonder, um, I don't experience a great deal about uh, of, of feedback about American poverty. And um, I just wonder, why have we lost it seems to me. I mean, there are definitely foundations on a global scale that are dealing with the issues rather unsuccessfully, I think. But in light of something like uh, what happened in Japan, where we know that there will be a response and that the tragedy itself will somehow be addressed, uh, I think more back to, to Katrina, where it was a poor population. It was considered a write-off. The President of the United States didn't even bother to turn up. I mean, I just wonder. Um, what there is that uh, draws people of goodwill away from their own backyard to, to do good work. And I don't mean uh, that critically, but...
1: No, not at all. Well, I'm you're actually, Michael, you introduced me as a founding executive director. I wouldn't say I'm founding, I'm the first executive director, okay. but actually Newfield was founded by philanthropists who have spent all of their life and resources uh, doing philanthropy within the U.S., and particularly with indigenous and... Um, uh, African-American and Hispanic and uh, Native American communities and uh, communi- community-based philanthropy. Um, and very, very thoughtful. And I, I don't know what the current figures are, and Michael, maybe you do, but actually perhaps 75% of all philanthropy, all money that's given away within the U.S. goes domestically. Um, and so perhaps from this conflict... I think, it's, I think conflict,
0: it's more than that. but Maybe. Uh, yeah. But in any case, high. it's high.
1: It's very high. And um, I think it actually is much higher. And so the money that actually goes from the U.S. through uh, private uh, foundations or from individuals, I think it's actually only like 10% of all right, the giving something. that's done. It's, very, but- it's pretty small. And so when you have a conversation like this, it probably gives the wrong impression. Um, and I think that the, definitely for those of us who are interested in... Um, not only, you know, uh, really recognizing that there are resources that are incredibly valuable and where is it appropriate to make, to give those resources. I think the question is, you know, where the gaps, where nothing is being received or where can it make a big difference and how, what do you do with it in the context of the big, the picture as a whole. And I think there's nobody questions the levels of poverty within US society um, and, but, Relatively speaking, there's many, 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 many more resources available.
0: I think the challenge is that, unfortunately, having actually studied this history, um, that uh, the vast majority of American philanthropy actually benefits the social class from which it comes. Mm. And there is an extru- it benefits the social class that is giving the money. And there's actually, even in the field of social welfare, which is the subfield of philanthropy where you would expect there to be an income transfer to lower-income people, even in that field, it benefits upper-class people or middle-class people more than poor people. So that when I really looked at the history of American philanthropy, the history of American philanthropy is... um, as one of the great sociologists who studied it uh, said, is that it's a buffer for capitalism. It is, in effect, a way of softening the harsh edges of American capitalism with no net income transfer to low, lower class uh, or poorer people at all uh, at a net level. Uh, and that explains why uh, the greatest uh, social... Um, the greatest social movement strategy uh, in American philanthropic recent history was the construction of the Reagan Revolution, which was created by a group of conservative foundations. Progressive philanthropy has never achieved anything on the scale of the Reagan Revolution. Um, So progressive philanthropy is a fascinating dimension of American philanthropy as a whole. But it has never moved the needle. The the closest it came to moving the needle was right after World War II when the Ford Foundation and a set of other foundations, which were then a very new phenomenon at that level, uh, came in and started uh, uh, moving an agenda that was a progressive agenda. And at that time, the progressives themselves were very unsure since they came out of a neo-Marxist background, whether these vast uh, uh, corporate-funded entities would ever really make a difference. But they finally decided that this was probably a good thing. But then that period passed, and the Reagan revolution has had a a much more systemic impact. Um, So your point is well taken that most American philanthropy goes to the United States. Sadly, it has not done a great deal to alleviate poverty in the United States or change the structure of uh, of, of the American system.
1: Let's and actually, can I add another yeah, yeah, point? Because yeah. I think yeah. your comment about, you know, how not much has changed with all of this aid um, and development, I would uh, support and agree. And I think that one also has to similarly look at actually what is this aid for and what right. does it? what's behind it. And a lot of it is about political influence, and a lot of it is about um, benefit actually returning to the to the country of the giving. So there was a very interesting study done in uh, Britain in the late 90s, uh, looking at, you know, the money that went out, what came back in terms of construction contracts or whatever it was, and it was like for every dollar given, one point two dollars was received back. And if you also look at the whole issue of loans and indebtedness, there's a huge amount of money that comes back from um, I mean, the value of the, the loans that are given, much more money comes back into U.S. and Europe through, um, through, through interest. So I, I think one, it's, a, it's reasonable to be questioning, if not cynical. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple more questions, yes.
4: Um, yeah, my question is about um, life at a more subtle level. I'm interested in consciousness, gender consciousness specifically, and kind of in terms of what he was talking about and just what you said, because it's a consciousness that um, manifests in these, you know, hard and cold facts or the lack of them, the absence of them. Um, has your organization considered? Um, efforts or programs or whatever from your money that um, works with the consciousness of men or the consciousness even of the women. Um, you say some of them are you know, organizing to the point where they're getting ready to, to run for office or whatever, which is, is very good, but um, you'd want them to be received and seen as ideal candidates by the entire community and you know hopefully we're able to move up into levels of uh, ministries or whatever where some of this um, uh, feeling that women bring to everything that we do can benefit not just a a community but a whole nation in terms of policies and um, laws and new ideas and new ways Am I, is, are you understanding?
1: I am, and actually I'm really interested if you could give an example of what you think would be an activity that could be funded that would be consciousness raising or
4: that would... Well, I, I just want to go a little bit further mm-hmm. because you mentioned your love of, 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 of going off into these mountains and finding these communities, and it is usually in those communities where the consciousness is most uh, bound to the past, where either through the cultural, or even the religious institutions that you will find uh, the greatest aversion to um, women taking uh, more responsible roles. So um, that is to me a very, 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 very fundamental um, part that has to be softened, ameliorated, dissolved, um, diluted you know diluted not diluted but diluted that um, these attitudes that as you say are are not ethnic they're you know they're kind of global because uh, you don't go to China but in China you have you know hard and core uh, hard uh, communities where women are working just as hard as they are and same thing in Eastern European nations so, so and through time People came into different ideas, or this set rules and ideas about our roles. And so it's this, this male concept of entitlement, you know, about um, what women are supposed to do and my ability to control, as a man, to control a woman's movement, abilities, and whatever. And so th- this, this consciousness is, um, is detrimental to, to, to the, the greater whole. All of us suffer because of this tightness to this. And so this is what I'm, I'm wondering, are you doing anything about that? Because in order to, to keep these women, like as you say, free from, from violence, free from conflict, there has to be a harmony. There has to be men rising up that are agreeing and that also then don't come into conflict with the rest of the men in the community. So that they're
1: all ostracized. Okay,
0: that's a great summary. Thank you. How would you respond to that?
1: So I would say uh, we absolutely are, but not in sort of very precise ways. So the way that it shows up is that when we fund a women's organization, often within their activities, uh, and frequently they will have um, activities that they're doing, which are advocacy with men in the community or awareness raising Processes in the community. So, uh, an example of uh, of one is in Guinea, uh, where there's been a program to raise the awareness of um, rural women about the laws in the country that support women's rights. But as part of that uh, program, they've been doing a lot of work with uh, the local chiefs, the religious leaders, the préfecture, the you know the district council. The key men in the 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 mayor, you know, they have those, and I think that women, again, are incredibly aware that they need to be doing that advocacy and providing training. So, for example, the prevention of female genital mutilation, uh, we've been supporting a program that works with police officers. I mean, it provides training to police officers, judges. So I agree with you. You you know, you need that kind of work to be done for the opening to take place it's probably a question of emphasis. Um, and it's also us trusting the analysis and the leadership of the women to know when and where they need to do it. And if they actually asked us, look, would you fund this program? We would say, well, you know, are you doing it? And what's your relationship with it? And we'd like to support you to do it. Um, and I think it's, I mean, I would have a question, I think, for example, the civil rights movement in the US, you know, do you, as a funder, it's always this question, do you, do you support the people to get stronger and to develop things how they want to. And are you for something or are you trying to, fu- are you funding against something? And we've, I think that we in Newfield are, our consciousness is to be for something rather than against something. And we also recognize that there comes a time when you actually do need to say clearly, look, this is unacceptable or you know, this, this needs to change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's subtle, and so I appreciate your, your comment, because it's difficult and it's necessary, and where do you put the emphasis? I
0: had a question right here,
5: yeah. Hi, um, I came from San Francisco today, because I heard this is happening, and uh, I am a documentary photographer, and I'm, I'm sorry, I came late, so I didn't hear what you said about your um, your film documentaries, but. I'm also just starting a project in Guatemala with indigenous women who are uh, weavers, they're farmers, but they use most of their plants um, to make plant dyes. And um, I'm learning that it takes a very special kind of person to be able to walk in between both worlds, from this country and um, and work with indigenous women with grace and integrity, and to also share each other's stories. And so I was just wondering what the most challenging things that you learned from this, from just walking in between two worlds and trying to communicate between, you know, finding the common similarities just between people, or, or is it all about the storytelling? I'm just wondering. (laughs)
1: <laughs> nice question. I would say um, the challenge is exactly as you've described it. It's very hard to work between both worlds. And I think that one of the things that we try to do at Newfield and that I try to do personally is to be transparent. It's like, who are we? You know, What do we stand for? And you know, what do we not do well as well as what do we do well so that others can see us? Um, and I think that in my life, Um, this has been one of the biggest challenges and uh, finding people on, you know, so I'm here and I'm white and I'm female and I carry all of my own personal history and baggage and my assumptions and, and then, you know, here is someone that I'm wanting to work with who has all of her own or his own, you know, history and identity and it's like, where are we looking towards? Do we look towards the same direction? And so actually, are we going to walk side by side and are we going to help each other? You know, if somebody's is about to stumble on a rock, do we help each other? Do we support each other? And I think it's, for me, it's that connection uh, at a spiritual level, at a, you know, a, um, an individual, personal relationship level that is something that, helps me through the work more than anything, and the people that I remember through all of my work, uh, I have very, very distinct memories of particular people where I've had this sense of connection who've, who've helped me and who've also been honest, who've told me, you know, you're not doing something very good here. Um, and so, being willing to listen and to be guided and by to that. Learn from them. Yes. And really to listen, I think it's an, it's, it's quite difficult and it's
6: mm-hmm.
1: important.
0: Paula, you had a question.
6: I'm really interested to hear a little more, and you're, you're talking about it in, in between all of these spaces your, your inquiry approach to development. Um, a lot of things were starting to percolate inside of me as this woman here was asking you what I understood to be, in part, a question about. Capacitating the women in these areas, and how you make those decisions, and, and do you come in and help? And what I was understanding your, it's like, what are you doing about this dynamic and helping women to raise their conscience to become more politically um, effective? And um, just in 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 that whole space there, what I get in your answer is your inquiry approach. So. Um, about asking the women. I'm really curious about how you make decisions, how you make collaboratively make developmental uh, decisions and navigate these spaces through uh, direct inquiry with these women that are on the front line. Mm.
1: So I think that the really important part is um, the people that we work with. So it's the people themselves you know, the the leaders of the rural Women's Organizations or other people in the community who were saying, this is our analysis, this is our direction, this is what we want to do. You know, will you support us or will you accompany us? And then it's like, okay, looking at that from different angles. So our advisor says this, our program officer says this, our board says this, you know, and actually part of my job is actually bringing all of these things together um, to say, do they fit together? Do they make sense? You know, have we taken account of all of the different elements? And so is this are we going to go forward with this group? And we you know, we we do we have an incredibly rigorous selection process and we have a very rigorous assessment process. Um, because actually we want to have a relationship for seven seven to eight years at least with an organization. And once you've entered a grant a funding relationship, it's much harder to get out of it once you're in it than to say no before you start, mm-hmm. so we spend a lot of time up front doing that, and a lot of my job is helping to develop, I guess it's like, I mean, I for, it's sort of like a 360 degree review, and ultimately, I have to, my responsibility is to, you know, arrive at a decision which is based on information and knowledge, and I use my intuition a lot, and also my experience um, of having really done, you know, Starting in my journey, it's, I've had lots of full starts and difficult moments, and I've sort of learned to navigate, so mm-hmm. it's a process. I don't know that that answers your question. I, think, I sort of feel you have a specific interpretation of inquiry, and I'd be interested to hear. Well, or definition.
6: How you responded in that you, you said that, well, different board members would say, they would say this or they would say that. And, and um, I would understand an inquiry approach that different board members may ask this or may ask that, and that there be questions that get asked in response to what the women are saying that they would like to do and what they need, so that there's this kind of uh, a different perspective, if you will, or a, a larger um, perspective that gets brought to the table to help the women make a decision best in their context, and that the inquiry be about understanding the context mm-hmm. in which they're and in context, conditions, and environment in which they're operating in, so that that your board uh, can understand and and like that that's.
1: And we have a very engaged board and actually two, two of them uh, made a trip to Burkina Faso and Mali last November and, um, you know, to the year before that, I mean, so all of them have actually made visits and are deeply interested in these issues and have the knowledge of working at community level here. So are very alert to many of the issues and the dynamics of grant-making.
0: I'd like to bring this home, uh, Sarah, to West Marin, where we both live. And when we were having tea in preparation for this, you, you said something wonderful to me. You said that that at this point in your life, one of the questions you were asking yourself was the, the balance between your work and your family. And um, uh, I wondered if, if you would explore that a little with us. What, what shape does that take for you? You obviously work very hard. Uh, uh, you have a actually quite interesting family, as I understand. Uh, what shape does that question take as you ask yourself about it?
1: Well, it's, it's a question that I've asked myself, I think, all my life. And I think it's, yeah, I do have this terrific energy and passion for the work that I do and the relationships that I have through the work. And then I have these more intimate relationships with my family. So there's my own family, you know, both my parents have died, but, and I have two older sisters. But, you know, that, that has been a, a force within my life, and I have mostly rejected my my parents and a lot of my family for much of my life, and I'm coming back to having a relationship with them finally. Um, I think my, my greatest interest at the moment is my children and my grandchildren. And I have, you know, a 45-year-old son and a 15-year-old son. So, And then I have an adopted daughter and I have a, a stepdaughter who I haven't parented. So I do have these quite complex multi-generational, multi-racial uh, relationships within my direct family. And um, I think I'm resisting moving into just being a grandmother, which I ought to gracefully be doing at my age. <laughs> um, but uh, things have a bit si- upside down because of my teenage son. And I think that for me, there's a huge joy in being close to a younger person who Gives me a new understanding of the world through their eyes, and um, I value that. And I think that I move as my son gets older. I'm moving into not having immediate family in my home, and so I'm going to miss that. I am already missing it because my son's already moving out. And so, how do I how how do I nurture that? So I've had a very long, long life with. Lots of rich work and lots of rich family life, um, and they've sort of gone in and out and you know meshed. And sometimes there's been more emphasis on one than the other. And I've definitely had long periods when I haven't been doing much work, but I've been concentrating on family. And, um, and I'm now moving into this phase where I don't want to just be working, yeah. um, and I actually don't particularly. I mean, you know, my family are quite far away, so it's not as if I have grandchildren down the road. Yeah. So i don't know what what about you what's your
0: my <laughs> <laughs> my experience is um you know my experience actually is um, that it's not hard for me and that um I at one level work all the time, but at another level it's like a dance for me it's like uh it's most of it is quite effortless I mean I, it takes effort but the, the dance is somehow effortless and so um, um, I have a, a son who lives in Noe Valley and he just had a daughter so we have a grandchild um, and uh, my wife Charles works with me here at Commonwealth, and we both like to work um, so um, uh, but I guess that I guess my overwhelming experience is an experience of gratitude. It's gratitude that, you know, uh, 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 39 years ago or whatever it was, I moved to this small community and tried to figure out a way to make a living and um, make a contribution. And um, 34 years ago, we started Commonweal, and it hasn't stopped yet. So, um, I just have an enormous sense of gratitude and, um, this new school project, which is our newest project is completely fascinating to me because it's a way to get to know my neighbors and, you know, find interesting people in the community and introduce them to other interesting people in the community. And I, I must say that, uh, I'm a few years older than you are, but at age 67, I find myself, um very interested in the parts of the world that I can get to without getting on a plane. And so my, you know, a lot of my focal interest now uh, is in West Marin and in the Bay Area or the broader Bay Area. And I'll just give you one example of uh, a place that I'm very fascinated by called the Wildflowers Institute. Uh, founded by a Chinese-American named Han Min Liu and his wife, Jennifer May. They live right on the edge of Chinatown. And he has developed a a global strategy that that works with um, low-income communities to help them rediscover the power of their cultural resources as a renewable resource for their work. And he works with um, 15 or 20 different diaspora communities in the Bay Area and has identified leaders of these communities and works with them to help them identify cultural resources as an organizing tool. Um, And I uh, I find that issue, that as a nation, we are now a nation of minorities. We have literally entered the point where there is no ethnic group that is a majority anymore. And so one of the critical issues for the United States will be how do we, as a nation of minorities, negotiate this new
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, experience? And I find uh, Hanmen is, is unique, I think, in the Bay Area in having consciously brought together uh, leaders of these diaspora communities of color that represent the informal capital or social capital of these communities and how they developed that. Mm-hmm. So... Um, So I just feel, quite honestly, I feel blessed and grateful uh, that I've been given the chance to do this work and the chance to have conversations like this. So Sarah Hobson, thank you so much for being with us at the New School.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.